Hello, I'm Earl Fontanelle. This is the Schwepp, the Secret History of Western Esotericism podcast. And we are delighted today to be speaking with Sasha Chato, a woman who knows a thing or two about Josephine Paladin. In fact, a woman who has just finished a book called Artist, Thou Art Priest, the Vision of Josephine Paladin, soon to be out with Fulger Press. Sasha, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you very much for having me. Tell us about this gentleman, Josephine Paladin. He is a very prominent character in, the, say, the modern history of occultism, among other things, certainly the modern history of art. But I feel like he's been understudied. He's not as well known as some of the, um, the big names, you know, at least in the Anglophone world. Maybe he is more known in, in the French world. So if you could just introduce the basics, first of all, and then we'll go from there. Very brief background. Paladin was born in 1858 uh, in the south of France originally. Um, He came from an incredibly interesting family. His father was this militant Catholic who wanted to restore uh, the Ancien Regime to lead France and um, who was an early journalist, set up a series of periodicals um, trying to promote his cause. But also, and this is um, how Peladan grew up, his father held a salon in which all the philosophers and um, poets and thinkers and even mystics of the time would gather and talk philosophy and talk metaphysics and politics. And the very young Peladan um, would serve them wine and get involved in these conversations. And he even describes his own memories of sitting on the knees of uh, Soulary, the poet, and uh, listening in and asking questions. And this had him, this um, made him quite precocious in some ways. So Paladin managed to get himself expelled from every school he ever went to because he'd speak up and contradict uh, the teachers, particularly on matters of religion. And um, his father eventually shrugged and said, well, um, it doesn't really matter. You probably wouldn't have learned much from them anyway. Gave him a bunch of books and told him to go away and educate himself. So Peladan became an autodidact, reading Plato, reading Fabro d'Olivet, and all sorts of other things that uh, at that particular age, uh, you know, he was already, he was reading uh, Agrippa, he was reading what we might call the canon of esoteric thought at a very young age. Um, he went off to Italy and discovered Renaissance art and felt that this was his, it was his calling. He wasn't an artist himself, but he felt that it was his calling to restore this kind of artistic expression to French society. As a young man, he was also initiated into a very closed, if you like, branch of um, Toulouse-Rosicrucianism by his brother, who was another curious character but who sadly died young and Paladin seems to have taken a lot of the Rosicrucian principles to heart as we see later in his work. So he then took himself off to Paris uh, with the aim of pursuing a literary career and it seems that at this stage um, on the back of his visit to Italy and all these ideas he'd absorbed through his father's circle he already had some ideas about where he wanted to take it. He audited courses in art history and Chaldean history at the Louvre um, and earned himself money uh, through very boring sort of desk jobs here and there until he just decided it wasn't 
good for him. But then he started, gradually started publishing art criticism originally and art reviews. And that was the start of his literary career. And he got himself into circles of or the salons of some of the novelists and well-known writers of the time. So uh, Barbé de Rivry, uh, Charles Bouet, who was also the editor of um, one of the journals he wrote for, and um, so on. From this point, Peladan had a variety of interesting encounters with both literary circles and um, not so much with occult circles at first, until... He started making a name for himself originally writing art criticism. And from the beginning, Peladan was extremely critical of the academic classical art style of the time. He was also very critical of anything resembling naturalism. So it was very clear right from the start, for him, art and literature had to have a meaning. They were only meant to be vehicles tuned to a higher purpose type of naturalism we see, for example, from Zola or the type of naturalism equally seen in visual arts were to him uh, a complete waste of time that um, just dumbed down people's thinking. And his critiques were vicious. He began to make quite a name as one of those critics who would really rip into the uh, sort of exhibitions in the salons and Position Nationale des Beaux-Arts, he became so unpopular because of his reviews that they actually forbade him entrance. And one time he he rolled up disguised (laughs) to try and get in under a false name. After being chastised and um, by his editors because of reader complaints, he toned it down a bit. And that's where he started going off in a more esoteric direction. Before we get to that, mm-hmm. I wonder if we can just get a picture of what he's doing so far. Is he, to put it in modern terms, is he a bit of a troll? Is he sort he of making is. a career out of being that guy who says the thing that no one else wants to say? <laughs> he is, but the thing is that he's basing it on a very clear and very almost systematic philosophy that he has come to not only adopt but express and he is so certain of his principles and he's so clear that they're standing on the backs of um, ancient philosophers and principles to do with uh, human evolution if you like human spiritual evolution and the role of the arts in this and the role and the shape of society that yeah he is that guy definitely Peladon was that guy but he's also he's got this vision um right so he's not he's, he's not just that guy but he he has got some he's got some depth to what he's doing now he does when he's attacking the kind of trendy realism of the day is the attack along the lines of what is all this documenting of the gutter and who who cares about the the stinky lives of everyday poor parisians we need to get to eternal truths this sort of thing it's not who cares it's not who cares but it's um a desire to stop perpetuating it because if in for peladan art essentially needed to be there to remind us that there is something greater that we can aspire to and reach. And he felt that art should show us what, and literature, should show us what that could look like 
so that the idea was we could actually implement it. So it was kind of meant to give a roadmap. It was meant to be here. This is the higher sort of um, uh, spiritual level to which you can aspire. Here's the better life to which you can aspire. But you've got you do have to lift your head up out of the gutter first. So he felt that if all that art did was recycle um, the decadence and ugliness that he saw in society around him, then, of course, it was just going to be a vicious circle that never went anywhere. So is he attacking the 19th century as part of his um he's thing? attacking he's well he's not attacking the 19th century he's standing on a threshold his generation is really standing on a threshold because what you're looking at there you're looking at the birth of modernism you're looking you're looking at the birth of modernism literally screaming as it, as it <laughs> as it's being born and looking and and with Paladin, a lot of earlier scholars have kind of claimed him for decadence, or they've claimed him as a sort of a proponent of um, romanticism. He's nothing of the sort. I think Paladin is a mod, a genuine modernist in that he's breaking the rules of his day, and he is taking what is an individual, um, a personal vision which he's then pinning to um very much renaissance style pinning to the glorious past where he sees traces of it mostly to plato i have to say um this is something that nearly everybody's missed that plato is really the bedrock of peladan's thought and he's trying to translate that while thinking that this is the last chance to save western civilization he thinks it's truly on its way out. So he's in Paris. This is, I guess, in the 1870s, 1880s now, when he's this being a is, critic? We're in the early 1880s. Early 18, 1881, he went to Paris. By 1883, he was already quite notorious for his vicious critiques of uh, the salons and exhibitions. Um, yeah. And then and, he gets Esso. He gets really occult at a certain point. Well, this is the point where he decides to publish his first book, his first novel, Vis Supreme, which uh, he had already reworked, been reworking for the, the previous two years. So I think he was looking for the right time to release it, to feel that it was ready. And he was having some trouble with a lady friend as well, which may have held him back a little bit. And it's around the same time um, that we know from his notes that Peladan seems to have planned out for himself almost the whole cycle of novels that he then would go on to write in the decades that followed. So it seems that around this point in time, he had this really clear picture of um, what he wanted to do uh, in terms of his literary uh, work it, as far as fiction went, because let's not forget, he wrote both fiction and far more esoteric uh, treatises, and they kind of go hand in hand, but they're meant for different audiences and for different purposes. And I think all of that seems to have been very carefully planned. He says so himself. So he publishes uh, Vie Suprême, self-publishes it, in fact, in 1884, and it was a runaway success. This made his name initially. It set 
in the real world, but it's also set in mythical landscapes. He draws in Assyrian deities alongside people of his own time. And what Peldan seems to be trying to demonstrate is how the sort of material world or that the society he's in has the potential to interact with higher beings, as it were. And it's through these novels and far more so through his um, non-fiction work that he eventually unfolds this vast cosmology that turns out to be extremely well organized and cohesive from beginning to end. So we actually have across the um, breadth of his oeuvre this act of world building, but using, of course, figures and deities from esoteric and traditions and world mythology. So it's all very, it's it's very big. (laughs) It's very, very big and very, very complicated. That's extraordinary. Um, How have people, just as a little side note, in in approaching this from a critical perspective, how have people tried to categorize his his fiction? They haven't. Right. There's one reference that I came across in um, a French book on um, the fantastique genre, which mentions Paladin, but it's as an aside. He was posthumous. I mean, his books were look, his books were well received in his lifetime until the very public debacle, which we'll get to in the 1890s, where he broke with major esoteric figures and he became uh, he became a figure of ridicule, a very public figure of ridicule. And it's at this point he starts to slide into obscurity, really. So even within his lifetime. Peladan was already sliding into oblivion. Any critics that looked at his books later mostly dismissed them, and even the definitive, supposedly definitive biography by Christophe Bofis, they all dismiss his literature as turgid, florid, and not very good. And the fact is, it is extremely florid. He made up words of his own, because why wouldn't he? It is not always easy. It requires one to really try to see things from his perspective, to try to understand what he was trying to do, to kind of get into his head a little bit, to to be able to stay with some of the more kind of lengthy descriptions. Some of his books and some of his, uh, and I mean, I mean the fiction now, is absolutely brilliant. And some of it's actually beautiful, but it's not all of it. It's There are flashes of genius there. But quite honestly, literary scholars have waved him off as insignificant. He's been remembered for the salons and for being slightly ridiculous. And so the first really close look at his literature is the work that I've done here which um, I'll be very glad to share. And again, I haven't done, I haven't been able to go into great depth because it's been an all-encompassing, okay, let's take it from the top and let's see who was this man and what was he trying to do in the hope that now other scholars will be able to pick up the, uh, the you know, whatever. detailed inquiries and down different alleyways and stuff like that. Yeah, yeah, that's for, that's for someone else to do now, I think. But mm. um, at least there's a, there's a starting point and that was kind of my aim. Now, let's carry on with his life, if we can. He's on the scene. He's also on the occult scene. And there's been mention of a mysterious salon, mysterious to us so far. Tell us about the scene that he's moving in, what he's he's up to, these salons. 
Yes. So firstly, uh, Paladin's, again, his first novel also incorporates very obvious esoteric themes and uh, Assyrian deities and initiatory uh, experiences and references to initi- the, the notion of initiation. So he's making it obvious to anybody who's reading and understands these things that he is also very well versed in this subject matter. And this is the catalyst that brings Peladan together with Stanislas de Gaita, because, and ostensibly, this is when both their occult careers take off. De Gaita wrote to Paladin um, very humbly, very, very eagerly to say that he, well, that he wanted guidance. He wanted um, to become his disciple in a sense. Uh, they corresponded very regularly, becoming firm friends. And from 1886 onwards, they were actually calling each other brother. And at some point, Paladin had initiated De Gaita into the same Rosicrucian line um, as that of his own brother. So very quickly, De Gaeta, everything Degaita knew, he learned from Peladan, and that's how he became familiar with esoteric texts of the day, and so on. Peladan continues to write, continues to publish, and um, by 1887, they begin coming into contact, and mainly through Degaita, who was a bit more outgoing in, in those circles, in esoteric circles, De Gaita meets Papus and introduces Peladan as well. And um, the uh, he's introduced by Santiv Dalvedra, who's important because, first of all, he is behind the sort of synarchic movement that becomes part of Papus's um, sort of legacy. But also one of the, he's also one of the reasons why Peladan later broke off from the group. So essentially, it's around this time, you, you take a step back for a second, we're in a Paris where suddenly occultism is on the front pages of newspapers. First of all, you've got all sorts of things, crazy things going on, Satanism and Freemasonry and this and that and the taxial scandal. And you've got all sorts of things that are actually in the daily news, if you can possibly imagine. And it's in that climate uh, of strange kind of um, extroversion, if you like, where Papoose has this grand sort of vision of uniting, of unifying the different occult orders into a single unified system. Because you've also got the Theosophical Society, you've got um, strains of Martinism, you've got Masonic lodges, you've got Rosicrucian, various Rosicrucian lineages, in fact. And Papus is looking for a way to turn this all into one unified whole, based on an initiatory uh, structure um, and following a kind of model, like almost like a school. Uh, and this is called Ecole Hermetique uh, to start with. So you've got all the names there. You've got Chabousseau, De Gaeta, Chamuel, Paul Cédir, Paul Adam, Charles Barlet, and among them, Peladan. But, do they have? Do they have like a a school? Do they have a premises, or is it more of a notional school? Um, I'm not in. I, I believe there was a meeting place, but I'm not entirely sure 
what form it had. Hmm. So it may, it may have been an unofficial sort of somebody's living room, but in the, in the style of the salons of the day, I'm not actually sure. But there certainly are meetings and kind of instructive uh, sessions. Um, do they go in for ceremony? Do they have grades and initiatory steps? Yes, they do. Thing? Yes, they do. Yes, they do. Um, following largely the Martinist um, model. However, Peladan is unhappy. And Peladan is unhappy for a number of reasons. He supports the next step, because this was Papus's project, is de Gaeta founding the Order Cabalistique de Rosquois, which is drawing on the Rosicrucian elements. Um, and this is basically the initiatory body, if you like. However, it is heavily, heavily syncretic because it's drawing on the ideas, that this idea of unifying all these different um, occult um, orders or uh, elements into one unified whole. And they're, just, they're trying to get everything in there. Basically, Western esotericism is what they're after, right? <laughs> Basically, Western esoteric traditions. Yes, exactly. Exactly. I mean, the story of Western esotericism is syncretism, and it's yet another attempt, again, at improving on perhaps what seems to be a fragmented system. And, uh, you know, make no mistake, at the time with this whole sort of fad, if you like, it was in fashion almost to dabble in this or that or the next thing. Um, this was social capital. You know, so and you weren't initiated in the one thing because this order wasn't talking to that order, but you were initiated into the next thing. I mean, I think everybody listening knows how this works. Um, so in a sense, Papus is trying to kind of get everybody to be friends and have one melting pot. But also this kind of puts him a cut above the rest. And I don't think we should lose sight of that. He thinks um, he's a cut above the rest. I think I, I think there was a sense of vying for status. So, no, no, not in his own eyes, but in, and in fact, I think Papus was one of the more, more genuine among some of the figures active in, the, uh, in, the in that time. But um, certainly some of, the, some of the steps taken, like, for example, the um, magazine Initiation that was their channel of communication to a wider public and putting out some pretty deep esoteric material um, and making it av available to a wider public I think that, that the whole the whole effort was to um, create something that was prestigious that had status and um, that would be able to lead um, while the others squabbled in their wake sort of thing right that's the sense that makes sense did they when when there was still unity and when um de Gaeta, papus and peladin were still mates maybe before we proceed it's time to talk about a little bit about what they were teaching what their movement was about so what you know you mentioned that he had a um an education in basic rosicrucian principles as a child like what what are the basic Pelada. rosicrucian principles yeah what what are these uh, Rose, Rosicrucian hip Parisians on about? Well, again, speaking speaking of Peladan specifically, um, it's the content of the manifestos. Right. So there's it's, alchemy in there. Uh, sorry. So there's alchemy as part of the picture. No, there isn't alchemy in there. Um, it's uh, because that would be the chemical wedding, more specifically. Anyway. Uh, so we're talking about like a. 
a new Which a new one? spiritual stroke political order that's going to transform humanity spiritual and it's deeply deeply social um it's right back to the main uh, the basic rules of the pharma fraternitatis that which is to cure the sick and that gratis to follow the custom of the country and not stand out too much peladan failed in that respect but yes it was the belle epoque so let's say <laughs> to meet once a year and to seek a worthy successor after death and whatever they did to do in the name of Christian Rosenkreutz or whatever allegory that was uh, he, his he as a figure was understood to represent and that's it what's interesting you see we talk about rosicrucianism and i always have the um uh, I always have to kind of flag up which Rosicrucianism because right. it's a matter of interpretation as you go down the centuries. And it, people often expect when we're talking about Peladan for there to be far more flamboyance associated. I'm always asked, well, were there grades? Were there initiatory grades? Actually, in, t- in terms of his practice and his applic- implementation, no, there weren't. I think it, what it seems to have been, and certainly for the order that he founded onward, it seems to have been this very clear statement of principles and a vow sworn, an oath sworn to uphold these principles. From there, Peladan did make certain rules for the people that kind of stayed with him. But those, I believe, were more his own interpretation of how they should be implemented than anything drawing on tradition or Rosicrucian history. The main principles that he did adhere to, and we see this um, through his work, are the basic rules of the pharma, and that's it. And this is what leads up to his break, you see, with Papus and de Gaetan. Because while it seems that they are trying to create something that is very impressive and very prestigious and very uh, bells and whistles, basically. He feels that this is leaving, it's moving away from the substance and essence of what he wants to achieve. And he doesn't want just another esoteric order with grades and bells and whistles and funny uh, hats and funny badges. He wants things to change. He wants society to change. And he wants people to sit down and get and feel that in their hearts, as it were. Yeah. That's what Peladan's interested in, you see. Now, when he sort of contextualizes what he's doing, you mentioned earlier that he thought Western culture was on the skids, which a lot of people mm-hmm. did at the end of the 19th century. Does he see what he's doing with the sort of Rosicrucian message, carrying the Rosicrucian message forward into the coming 20th century as being the potential antidote like we can save western civilization if we just rosicrucianize so we need to go for it's not just rosicrucianize that's just the <laughs> great word there Earl. <laughs> that's just one thread one strand of it let's jump to his cosmology because that this is where it all makes sense which is very hard to do without pictures, but I will ask kind listeners to try and imagine if they can. Uh, listeners, please see the diagram accompanying the notes to this episode for what Sasha is about to explain. So Paladin perceived a spiritual hierarchy very much along the same lines as Dionysus, um, pseudo-Dionysus, in the sense of 
the world emanating from a creator downwards. But the thing was for Peladan that the creator of the material world and of humanity was not God. According to Peladan, God created the angels and then God charged them with making the primordial androgyne, as found in Plato's Symposium. According to Peladan, this act of creation, the moments that the angels took the creative act into their own hands, figuratively speaking, this signaled the birth of art. The angels created this androgynous being, which they fell in love with the minute they created it, because essentially they created it out of their their own shadows, Peladan's story goes. Wow. They fell in love with their own handiwork, at which point Lucifer felt that they simply had to share the celestial mysteries and principles with their creation so that it would attain self-awareness. Because as as it stood, it was just simply, it, it was no more than a homunculus, if you like. Even the angelic shadow was so beautiful that they wanted to imbue it with the mysteries and knowledge. As Paladin has it, this couldn't work, not because it would have rivaled God, as per the biblical story, but because the androgyne was spun from angelic shadows, it could not contain them. It would this would have contravened natural law, and it simply wasn't str- of strong enough substance, if you like. So the angels kept trying to teach it to turn it into something more than it was, and the end androgyne became curious. So you've got to try and imagine this almost childlike being, but in its existing form, the self knowledge would have destroyed the natural order. Therefore, this figure that Peladan does call the Demiurge, he does um, get designated as uh, Yoa Elohim, mm. rends the androgyne into male and female, giving, it, giving each certain characteristics, certain qualities. And the price for free will and self-knowledge was to become mortal and to be placed in time, into temporality. That was the price for acquiring knowledge of the divine mysteries. Peladon explains the whys of this according to natural law and the balance, uh, the the relative um, ability of matter to contain, if you like, certain different degrees of mystery. That's how he explains the why this had to happen. But then he goes on to tell the story, uh, the continuation of this, saying that when these newborn humans were placed on earth, they were no better than beasts. And again, this is coming from ancient Greek law. This is coming from Aeschylus. They're no better than beasts, really. And the children of Lucifer that Peladan names the Elohites, not Elohim, Elohites. So sons of the Elohim, if you like, the children of Lucifer, um, also known as Bene Satan, are looking at this creature in dismay and in pity, but also in disgust. It's turned into a brute, this beautiful creation of theirs. And he gives us the key to it all. I mean, Peladan writes about this both allegorically and um, (laughs) straight up to explain his uh, theory, or his theology rather. 
and he um, explains that um, there's a standoff between the Elohites and the Archangel Michael. Basically, what happens is the Elohites are sent to earth, condemned to stay on earth, with the sole charge of raising, of, of teaching, and even um, mating with these brutish mortals until such time as they can raise their consciousness, human consciousness, to um, a level where the humans are ready to reintegrate with the divine source. And it's at that point that these fallen, if you like, fallen angels will be set free of their bonds and of the duty set to them. And according to Peladan, again, all of the names of the deities that we find in the different polytheistic religions through time, all the names of the great teachers or the great initiates that we find, such as in uh, Shure's uh, great initiates, all of these figures that we have in uh, legend, in myth, um, and in pre-Christian um, polytheistic religions, these are just different names given to these same fallen angels who have been put there to guide mankind from the start. So they're not fallen in the sense of a, a sin of rebellion, as no. in St. Augustine. They're fallen in the sense of compassion and sort of creative. They're, they're sort of like primordial artists, right? And they want to... Basically, basically, yes. But they're also tied now to the material realm. And they're also devastatingly attracted to one another. So they, there's, there's this whole trying not to commit incest going on as well. Yeah, I know, very peculiar. <laughs> but so this this is their punishment, if you like. But yes, um, they are the primordial artists who have to stay here until humanity wakes up and gets it together enough to go back up there and allow them to go to return as well. Right. Until so humanity has to graduate so the angels can go back home. Really interesting. There's so many... Um... <laughs> I love that because it's recognizably playing with some of the interesting para-Orthodox or even heretical ideas from the Christian traditions, right. but also has some Plato thrown in and perhaps the Hermetic Poimandres. I don't know if he read the, the Hermetica, but uh, the primordial androgyne is there. The primordial androgyne Indeed. is also found in alchemical literature. It's just that Paladin seems to get it... His main source here, you see, his main source is Fabre d'Olivet and his rereading of Genesis. And Paladin has come very much through the um, sort of the philosophical histories uh, intellectual trajectory. So that he's aware of the Hermetica, absolutely. Is that his primary source? I don't believe it is. I honestly don't believe it because the traces are syncretic already. They, they're already encrusted with a lot more. The only sources that I would say are pure, and pure, when I say pure, I mean going back to the roots as opposed to having being encrusted with several centuries of interpretations, are the ancient Greek ones, as far as I can see. Right. That's what seems to be happening. And what happens, and the reason I bring up Fabre d'Olivet, and this is an important element that I would have liked to have done more with, and I hope somebody else will, is Fabre d'Olivet sets about, sets about to rewrite the book of Genesis by reinterpreting the Hebrew text hmm. and applying all sorts of, some, some are completely arbitrary readings to 
the original, or some of them aren't Hebrew, they, you know, they've come down in sort of fragmentary form, but he rewrites and reinterprets them to a version that's close to this. And then Paladin takes it and rewrites it again. And he, but this time Paladin's making it fit with all the rest of his kind of grand theorem. So and there, there isn't a lot of alchemy anywhere, to be honest. Mm. Um, people are people attributed to Paladin. No, I don't see a lot of alchemy there at all. What I do see is this sort of concept of epistrophe being um, rewritten through. These are familiar tropes, but I don't think we have a cosmology as complete as this, or I haven't seen one as complete as this in a lot of the other thinkers, especially of his time. Yeah, he's taking a stand. And and you, as you say, if he puts it in a sort of allegorical way, but also just says, this is the nuts and bolts of what happened, yeah. He's yeah. This, this is very old school in a way. This is exactly what mm. the writers of Hermetica were doing in antiquity or what, well, the authors of the book of Genesis were doing for that matter, saying, this is how the world begins. And this is how yes. we find ourselves in the situation we're in. Fantastic. So we kind of know the crazy worldview he, or sorry, not crazy, exalted and sublime worldview that he, <laughs> that he sees lying behind reality. And so presumably his spiritual endeavors are in some sense aimed at helping the fallen angels get us to evolve to the next level. He wants humanity to evolve spiritually, yeah? Partly that, and he also wants to save himself because he believes that ultimately because these fallen angels did have intercourse with humans. Um, he believes that all the great sort of artists and philosophers um, that have popped up through time, they, they, are, they are all of this angelic, or as he calls it, demonic descent. Um, and he believes he's one of them. So he believes that he has a few drops of angel blood somewhere himself. And he thinks the only way that society needs to reach this critical mass of awakening for this to occur. So, I mean, this is a very long, long-winded uh, or long way round to your question of, of whether this could be achieved within this sphere and within this lifespan. And the answer is absolutely yes. He saw the potential for redemption within the human lifespan. Again, a lot of scholars have uh, claimed Paladin for sort of very fervent Catholicism. Uh, that, that is incorrect. The, he actually specifies that he uses the word Catholic or Catholique in the Greek sense, to mean universal. Right. He's a universalist. He, well, not in the modern American sense, but he's a universalist. And yes, he does draw very much on Orthodox or the Eastern Church theology rather than um, he, he very openly criticizes uh, Catholic theology. All of that is feeding in as well. And he believes that this can be achieved through direct engagement with the arts. Why? Because firstly, it's reflecting the creative act that originally spawned the androgyne yeah. and so on. You can see why people say he's a romantic, for lack of a better term. He is romantic, but and yeah. yes, in a sense. Because yes. artist as creator, artist as demiurge, artist as stand-in for God here down below, we can create, Certainly. we too can make beauty. There is certainly more in common with that for that ghoul of thought, if you like, than certainly um, than with decadence or anything else. Um, but there's also a very, very strong individualism at play as well, which we may not have time to go into, but which talks about it's where he delivers his teachings for self-initiation and how one is supposed to acquire self-awareness. So there's, it's, it's very, very reminiscent of Jungian 
individuation mm. and self-determination. Um, and I, that's where we find the other side of it. So it's for the good of all, but it's for the good of all. First of all, you've got to sort yourself out and you've got to be to grow into your full potential authentically and genuinely and it, it honestly some of it does read uh like young it's very which modern is interesting. it's very very modern isn't it in a lot of ways it is it is indeed mm. um and they they drank from the same cup i mean who knows what um i haven't been able i i did go looking i i became very suspicious about this particular similarity i wasn't able to find I mean, Bergson was uh, wandering around in Paris around that time, but I was not able to document exchanges. Therefore, I'm, <laughs> I'd be very careful about saying anything more or claiming anything more for that. But they did drink from the same cup, so who knows? So yes, that, that, so that's the element that's, that is extremely modern. It's this emphasis on the individual as well as the collective. Yeah. And the connection that comes with art itself, the, the arts is because, A, yes, we're reflecting the creative act that we've already mentioned, but also because Paladin claimed that the great monuments of the past, and remember, this is the time when artefacts are being shipped back from the Middle East, they're being shipped to Paris from Egypt. These are all new. These are all totally new discoveries. Um, so you've got to try and imagine the sense of wonder. It's not like you can just click a couple of web pages and take a look at the, the pyramids. These are being shipped to the Louvre. Um, yeah. Yeah. And all sorts of wild theories flying around and um, all sorts of schools of thought being built on the interpretations of these uh, artefacts. So Paladin's take was that all these great monuments of the different ancient um, civilizations were no more than the angels' encoding of these teachings and these sacred mysteries in a form that would firstly stand the test of time because they're set in stone, and secondly, encoded and embodied in this symbolic form that would require a certain degree of awareness and a certain degree of awakening for the person, for the human, to be able to interpret it. And they, therefore, it was almost a, a, a teaching a, a teaching object in its own right. So talking about the Sphinx, perhaps, talking about... Um, you know, pick a civilization and um, we'll run with it. But he gives specific examples of the Sphinx and the symbolism of the wings, of the beard, of the breasts, of the of how many layers of symbolism can be read into it, explaining that um, he believed that the angels had encoded the ancient teachings in this way for humanity through the centuries to be able to refer to and thus begin their ascent. So... A, a very unique take on what is essentially a very, very old tradition within Western esotericism, which is to I find think. the hidden meanings within the hieroglyphics and within the, the ruins yeah. of ancient Egypt. But he's obviously right. finding a Peladanian meaning there. <laughs> Quite. You know, Plutarch found Platonism, uh, Clement of Alexandria found Christianity, and so yep. on and so forth. Athanasius Kircher found some some crazy Jesuitical teachings of the catholic church and now we have the angels instructing mankind for our eventual spiritual evolution sasha this is fascinating i wonder if we can move on in a chronological way and get to the all the the great stuff like the, the controversy in the 1890s and um you know the falling out between these great occultists if we want to call them that 
and what happens and and then let's talk about how he ends his life and how it all comes to a close obviously he evolves and leaves this mortal world and goes back to god but what happens leading up to that so obviously everything we've just covered it kind of emerges through the full breadth of his books and he was writing he was writing almost until the end of his life but it's pretty much until the turn of the century for this material he went a bit funny after that and it, and it just gets sad but most of his work up until about the turn, roughly the turn of the century covers all of this all of this that uh, that we've just uh, discussed so we left him with de Gaeta and Papus and the um, Kabbalistic uh, Rose Cross Order and Peladan is not happy. And Peladan is not happy partly because he doesn't like Freemasonry, partly because he doesn't like Martinistic interpretations of Catholicism, partly because he doesn't like synarchy at all. And synarchy has become this... Um, De Gaeta's sort of latest uh, fad where he um, almost believes that the whole reason for this order is to establish synarchy in French society and that they, they as an order, should become the sort of eminence grise directing French society. And this was absolutely anathema to Peladan because he was all about the individual awakening, not, you know, becoming a puppet master. Um, and it was Santiv Delvedra who particularly who was pushing that and influencing um, De Gaeta. Paladin also um, is this, around this time, we're around 1890 now, his father dies. His brother had died a couple of years earlier, accidentally, very young, very tragic. And this really seems to set Paladin off. And he starts a series with it seems almost without warning he starts this series of public um announcements and public condemnations first randomly or perhaps not so randomly of Emile Zola and then beginning to criticize the order to which he had uh, lent himself. He hadn't discussed any of this earlier with de Gaeta or Babu, so this came as a complete surprise, and it was seen as terribly embarrassing and grossly inappropriate, obviously. Mm. And uh, de Gaeta tried to reason with Paladin, to which, again, Paladin responded publicly. All this is, all this is being done in letters, in public uh, journals and magazines of the day. And Paladin's final answer is that he cannot, his nature cannot allow him to continue uh, accepting the eclecticism he sees in this order. And I'm quoting, I could not take occultism in its entirety with me to mass, and I refuse to rub shoulders with spiritualism, masonry, or Buddhism. End quote. <laughs> so that gives you a sense of just what else was kind of being in the mix there. There were also very, very sort of uh, very bitter exchanges that continued in that vein. Uh, letters, accus- it continued for several years. Letters, accusations, back and forth, back and forth in three or four different uh, newspapers until finally De Gaeta had to condemn Peladan, his erstwhile well teacher, publicly. And that was where their paths parted. Peladan instituted a new order almost immediately and 
essentially there was a little tussle with de Gaeta over lineages and uh, Rosicrucian lineages and Peloton again in a public statement reminds everyone that he was the earlier uh, of the two and which lineage he'd been initiated into and he said that he was founding his new Rosicrucian order with the purpose of artistic events of uh, putting on artistic events and exhibitions and so on so it was uh, it, it was a little bit incongruous but it made sense it was sort of sense eventually um the public face of Peladan's new order was all about the salons which we'll go on to next i've been asked many times was there an initiate a private initiatory order and i'll say again what i've said before Peladan did set a series of questions to anybody who wanted to try to join these questions in and on the, of themselves were designed to really uh, see w- what these people were all about it was about seeing how self-aware they were how well uh, how well prepared they were to deal with um, spiritual issues like this they were required to take an oath but again it seems to be a, an oath to a set of principles there is no evidence whatsoever that there was then an initiatory progression like we get in Freemasonry or in similar structured orders. So he's de-esotericizing some esoteric material, one could say, right? Absolutely. He seems to have a kind of quasi-modern, quasi-kind of, you could say, a democratic sort of ethos to how he thinks. Even if he has some kind of aristocratic style, he's not about the kind of we are the inner circle sort of thing. No. And he's... That's seemingly part of the reason why he's rejecting this this very baroque, flowery, layers upon layers sort of occultism that Pepus is um, putting forth. And he's saying, you know, no, it's pretty simple, but it's serious. And join my thing and we'll do some salons. We'll have a salon and everyone's invited. Yes, indeed. Because, I mean, he did... In his manuals for self-initiation, he did set out a series of steps towards this awakening that we're talking about. But this was really for the people who were able to grasp it. And he didn't ever expect, and it's obvious from some of his uh, the other writings, this wasn't for everybody. This is for the people who could really handle it. And there was, separate, there was a separate handbook, if you like, for men, a separate one for women, and a, sec- and a separate one for artists. And each had, a, each was sort of, very much products of their time, but they were, um, they each tried to guide the people meant to be reading it according to his cosmology. You're absolutely right. And we have discussed this one before that he, yes, he turned it on its head, did away with secrecy because secrecy is, is about what you can and can't understand. You can slap somebody over the head with something. They're still not going to get it. It's still going to be a secret if they don't, if they're not ready to comprehend it. And yes, Paladin realized this, and that's exactly what he did. So the call he then put out to artists with the salons, the whole purpose of that of, of, the, of these activities was to bombard the public with symbolic messages encoded in the art. And this was visual art, sculpture, ritual theater that he wrote, and um, the music of Eric Satie, and then he would deliver lectures as well. And the whole point was that this was sidestepping all the kind of rigid, regimented, graded systems. He felt there were three layers or levels of consciousness at play in society. One was the mob, and he'd given up on them entirely. 
One he called the animique, and these were regular, normal people, animated, animated souls, but not yet fully awake. And these were the people that he was trying to get to. He, these were the people he wanted to shake up. And then there were the initiates, who were people who were already conscious of a sort of higher level or higher layer of things. And these were the ones he was calling to his side to help in this grand effort. Hmm. And yes, it was totally doing away with secrecy, doing away with all the pomp and circumstance. And of course, the traditional, traditional esoteric orders didn't like this at all, because of course, this was social capital, and he was just giving it out to yeah. any who were ready to listen. Yeah, for sure. Like the, the ex-Freemason who writes an expose of Freemasonry and gives away all the secret code words and stuff like that. Kind of. Free, the Freemasons <laughs> don't appreciate that at all. Um, no. <laughs> it's, not, it's not an entirely parallel case, but you can, you can see that... It isn't, but uh, yeah, it'll do. It'll yeah. do. This is where he organizes this series of five salons uh, in the 1890s. Six salons, I'm sorry. Uh, 1892 to 1897. The first was uh, something that Paris had never seen. I mean, uh, tens of thousands of people flooded the streets to go and see it. And it was wow. talked about for weeks. And, then, you know, the art, the art, uh, objectively speaking, was mediocre in a lot of cases. If, you, if we're going to talk technically, if we're going to talk academically. But it, it, we need to look at it in terms of what purpose was it trying to serve. And the purpose it was trying to serve was to embody these concepts that Paladin was trying to push forward. And most of all, even where there was technical weakness, it's more important to look at it in terms of the symbolic content and the meaning that it's trying to get across. And um, that was the main uh, thrust Six salons, but things had st things did go downhill. Things did go downhill, sadly. Tell us about that. How did they go downhill? So, well, to start with, Paladin uh, very quickly fell out with his main financier. So money became a problem very quickly, which he tried to um, make up by going on lecture tours, which were reasonably successful, especially in Belgium. And that's where he also designated Jean Delville, who was um, one of the um, key artists uh, participating in his salons, to carry on the project in Belgium as well. Um, so he designated Delville to be his successor in the matter of the salons, at least. And he may have actually done a better job, <laughs> to be honest. But also because Peladan, ever since the falling out with De Gaeta and the others, and because of his flamboyant, um, extravagant, if you like, turn of phrase and appearance, because, yeah, I, let's face it, this guy showed up in purple velvet robes and uh, big hair and called himself Sam Merodak for a time. So all of this, the papers picked up on, and more and more began to ridicule him. And although this also did, in Paladin's worldview, have a place, it didn't work in terms of PR. It was just really bad PR. So Paladin started breaking. The honest truth is Paladin started breaking. Um, and I think you can only take public ridicule for so long. And he wasn't even there 
for the last opening of the salon, which uh, tells you just how um, much it had worn him down. The sixth salon went did very well, but after that, Paladin suspended them, claiming that he didn't think the artist's work was up to scratch. All of this coincided with a rather messy divorce from uh, his first wife. To kind of clear his head or perhaps uh, overcome his disillusionment, Paladin took himself off on a long journey to the east. And he had all sorts of adventures in um, what is now Israel, Palestine. He was hounded out of Romania after a very successful lecture because, yes, the government thought that he was... uh, stirring uh, trouble. <laughs> a very successful lecture. And then uh, they thought he would, because he was uh, invited by an anarchist uh, political activist. And he also delivered a very successful lecture in Athens, where he was very moved to find himself. And then eventually he reached Egypt, where he has this deep, he gets to the Sphinx after a series of ridiculous, I mean, it, it, it honestly, you read that you read what happens. And I've tried to keep it short in, in writing it up, but it reads like a, um, a, a bad Mr. Bean movie. He has one disaster after another. He gets lost in the desert. He gets robbed. He gets hit by a cart. It's, uh, and so after all these miserable adventures, he rolls up at the Sphinx. Oh, he nearly drowned in the Nile as well. And, he, and Peladan's own memoir says that, you know, he suddenly found himself, found the Sphinx talking to him and telling him, you are guilty because you did not find the true divine expression of your purpose. You took men for demons and you operated according to pride. This is Peladan writing what he heard the Sphinx say to him. You have disobeyed tradition and your followers have shown you that fault at the top extends to the whole group. If you want to be followed, seem to follow. If you want to be heard, let others speak. Then he gives another little dialogue along the lines of what is the one thing he will take away from Egypt when he leaves? Judgment. Dang. He gets in a gunfight in Palestine, which was reported all the way back to Paris, and then finally gets himself back to Paris, where apparently he's going to give it one more shot and try to follow the commands of the Sphinx. But it simply didn't work out for him. So he goes back to Paris, having had this realisation that he's completely failed himself and failed his sacred purpose. And he's gone about it the wrong way. And he got the PR wrong, basically, and pride and all that. And he turns his hand. He'd already written a number of plays and he'd already had them performed within the context of the salons. But now he felt, having suspended the salons, that this was the way forward with the plays. And he was basically refused by every theatre he tried. Admittedly, he did aim very high, but then he had the tendency to take rejection really badly, so he'd get into kind of these public, again, debacles. And uh, he eventually got a couple of plays staged in Nîmes in his hometown, which... There are even photos, which is fantastic. There are actually photos of the set, which are quite, which are quite something, because there's some of them are sense set in ancient Assyria, for example. It's, it's, it's quite something to see. But at this point, Paladin's writing is getting darker and darker. So he churns out a few more 
of his novels that he that were already planned churns out a few more of his theoretical books. So at this point, I mean, he's got several dozen books out, several hundred pamphlets and articles and so on, and about a dozen plays. And but is it is it safe to say he's no longer on the crest of public interest with all this stuff? He's, he's well, well, well past that. And he continues writing for newspapers. So he's making a living. You know, he's writing for newspapers, smaller journals, smaller artistic and esoteric journals. And you see that his area of focus is kind of shifting. So he's moved, he's moved past that. There was, there was this one point between returning from these travels in 1898 and ni- 1902. So that's four years. Within the space of four years, he produced seven books in the space of those four years and carried on producing about three books a year right up until 1916. I mean, that he really kept going at it. As we're building up, though, to World War One, his tone changes. He, he gets this um, distinctly millenarian tone. He starts drawing more on um, Catholic prophecy, which is something that his father also did. You can kind of see he's going off in, in this strange direction. There's a strong jadedness. There's a strong disillusionment. And there, there's also um, a sense of regret that's starting to creep in even into his public writing. But it, what's most revealing is there's this, he made notes for an autobiography, which he abandoned. It was never written. It was never published. And one thing he keeps questioning is, uh, why did I not manage to gain acceptance? What did I do wrong? This was not about vanity. This was about art. What did I do wrong? And so this, this has become a constant theme now. And by the turn of the century, basically, um, he slid towards failure. His books began being pulped, couldn't get his plays performed. And it was it just kept sliding downhill from there. By 1916, Papoose uh, dies in 1916 and Paladin grieved very publicly. Although they had this rift had come between them, he was the one, Papoose was the one individual that Paladin always maintained respect for. Right. And so again, in his diaries, we find uh, comments uh, reflect these reflections of having lost his last illusions about humanity, that um, his sense that his life's work had all been in vain, that it would be forgotten. Um, I was incompetent. My contemporaries were unjust. Uh, I have nothing but regrets. You know, all these are from his diaries. So then uh, his friends begin to die in quick succession. By 1917, which is the year before he died, he actually said to one of his few remaining friends, I will die soon. It is all over for me. Everything I dreamt of ran aground because I went about it the wrong way, and I am paying for that. And the next year, he died from shellfish poisoning. Age 60. Stay esoteric. <laughs> 